Welcome to the Think Data podcast, brought to you in partnership with DataWorks. If you want to stay up to date with the latest breakthroughs and trends in the world of data and artificial intelligence, and if you're curious about some of the strategies that companies and founders use to launch data and AI products, then you're in the right place. Our aim is to bring together a diverse lineup of fantastic guests, from the founders through to accomplished leaders and product owners at some of the most fascinating data and AI companies worldwide. They will each offer you their own unique insight into what it takes to launch and scale a great data business. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy the episode. This is episode 25 of the Think Data podcast in partnership with DataWorks. And today I'm really happy to welcome Amanda Bickerstaff to the show. Amanda is a former high school biology teacher and edtech executive and is now the founder and CEO at AI for Education. They have a really unique mission, and that is to help educators and academic institutions adopt AI technology and adopt that responsibly. It's really good to have you on the show today, Amanda. And I do appreciate life as a founder, CEO, entrepreneur is keeping you pretty busy. So thanks for uh, thanks for taking time to chat. Would you mind um, giving us a bit of a, a background to who you are and uh, when and why you came up with the idea for AI for education? Absolutely. Thank you for having me, Alex. And yeah, I have a I would say a, a somewhat untraditional journey to uh, CEO and founder. I never took a business class in college. I don't have an MBA. Um, I, I really learned by doing, uh, starting as a teacher in a, a very low income, high complexity school in uh, the Bronx in New York City. Um, at 22 years old, just fresh out of college, um, you know, really interesting um you know, opportunity for me. It's the hardest thing I ever did until I became a CEO of a company in a new country. That's, <laughs> I have to do it the hard way. I don't ever do anything the easy way. Um, but yeah, that was the really beginning of my journey. It was something that really taught me about the importance of not only education, but also the what happens around an educational context. Like as a teacher in that area, like no matter how much I cared, I was coming up against extreme like infrastructure issues and contextual difficulties and systematic racism, like all, all these things that I couldn't necessarily impact directly. And and that's something that really stuck with me and has had me on this journey towards like educational equity is something I care a lot about. Um, and so it's kind of funny. I worked with you know a lot of um, kind of ed techs and education organizations after I left a, a PhD program without finishing. Sorry, PhDs everywhere. Um, <laughs> and uh, was something that I was able to impact even in those roles where I'd be like, hey, like we should be if we're in education, we have to have an education mission and a social impact mission. And when I that led me to you know all the work I had done led me to this opportunity to run an organization in Australia uh, that was doing survey and analytics around student perceptions of teaching, which is not an easy thing to sell. Um, and then when COVID happened, we had this opportunity to do research on the impact of COVID, which is went really really well. It's actually you know self published papers been cited over a hundred times, which is pretty crazy. Wow. Again, didn't finish my PhD, but probably should have. Um, <laughs> And so, yeah, so I had this really interesting experience, like research back, building ed tech, seeing how hard it is to do that. And then when I left Australia, you know, I was in the state of burnout. So I came back to, uh, I traveled for six months. I came back to the US and 
was thinking about what to do next. And it, I think this is just really this inflection point of time that I at least have never experienced something where people, some people are aware of this moment in time that this is transformational in ways that are, are deep, meaningful and pervasive. Um, and so when that happened with the advent of, you know, ChatGPT and generative AI tools, it really started to change my perspective of what the possibilities of edtech could be, but also at the same time, the incredible risks associated with adoption of these tools, considering the most technical thing that people do day to day is search Google, mm. which is not particularly technical. Yeah. And, you know, generative AI is not something like better Google. It's actually worse Google. And, you know, so it's something that I think has been really interesting. And that's what led me to, to start AI for Education. Amazing. What a journey. And I know, uh, I know we talked offline about this, but kind of AI is here, isn't it? Obviously, it's not going anywhere. And I think a lot of the issues we see about this adoption and, you know, utilizing and benefiting from AI is around the education piece. So, you know, I'm really interested. There's a lot of kind of uh, aspirational, entrepreneurial folk that listen to this. And I, I'm really interested to know, how do you take that vision? And obviously, the passion was coming through the understanding of kind of where this could potentially be successful. How do you take a vision and then turn that into a business? Because that's all ultimately you're taking passion and interest and then obviously trying to commercialize that. So how, how did you do that? It's, it's a really good question. It's actually something that um, I... I guess it started when I was at Pivot where you know I was an EdTech CEO. I We did a new rollout of technology, of a technology platform, and my, and I'll be honest, my inexperience of ever having to do it with a lack of kind of support at the higher levels meant that we didn't do it particularly well. And I learned a lot in that moment about like what actually drives me um, in the sense of like, I love helping teachers, helping people. I'm very motivated by that. I'm very motivated by creating better spaces for students and, and driving educational outcomes. But am I really motivated about like how to figure out the best way to roster or collect data from different systems or, you know, the best way to get someone to be able to cut and paste a password? Like, not necessarily. Like, I will tell you if, uh, sorry, those that like AWS, but like putting a colon at the start of a password for teachers is like the death of me. I will be very honest. But, you know, I learned in that moment and I had, um, you know, advisor when I was thinking about leaving the CEO position, which is the first time I, I mean, like I was a CEO, like it, it was something that, you know, was aspirational for me. And he asked me like, is this the right role for you? And is this the right, like, is this what you want to do? Is this really where your passion is? Is this what you're best at? And for many reasons, it wasn't. And so I came back and I started not just AI for Education. AI for Education was literally a website I built on a weekend <laughs> on Squarespace because Google domains wouldn't work with WordPress. I mean, like it was just a you know completely crazy thing where I did it on a weekend and built a prompt library literally from nothing. I never even looked up what a prompt library is. I'm not sure I knew. I don't even know how I knew that that was a title of something, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but just put something into the world. And then... On the other end, I was like, okay, I'm an EdTech CEO. Let's build something. So I partnered with a great technical co-founder about something I'm passionate about, which is well-being. And we started to, to build that. And I was doing these two things in concert, which is really a big no-no. And mm. people will tell you it's hard enough to do one thing well. Um, but I was constantly being pulled back and forth. And I just really enjoyed like talking to people and and creating practical ways of understanding AI, of thinking about adoption, of building you know, resources. And when 
on the other end, we were building this AI tool. I couldn't do anything. I couldn't fine tune the model. I couldn't do any of the, you know, bug test, you know, bug fixing. And, and so I was in this state of stasis. And so when it came down to it, while maybe the, the, the uh, former, um, like that technical piece could be something that could lead to like a VC backed huge company over time, it wasn't really where my passion was. So I really, by June, I was like, you know what, I'm going to focus on this. The world was telling me also, people were offering to pay me for stuff when I wasn't even ready to accept payment um, in like a month and a half. And so that was really like a very big moment of this that I was actually okay doing something that traditionally is seen as bad. Like people don't like services businesses, Mm. you know, and think that they're really hard to scale and they're not very sexy for investors. But at the same time, like in this moment where everything is brand new, it's this opportunity to be incredibly creative, to see impact very quickly. And the idea of commercializing it, I'll be honest, we've, we've been doing this for, you know, we're, we're building alongside generative AI. It's not like we're this mature company, but what we're seeing is that, you know, thinking about scalability, thinking about, you know, what has the biggest impact, thinking about systems down mm. is really helping us monetize that while something as simple as, well, yes, it's not simple. It actually takes a lot of time. But posting on LinkedIn with really practical, engaging content has meant that we have many opportunities to build the business and actually have it something where hopefully in you know a couple months we have a team and we're you know doing something that's replicable with enough revenue that we feel confident going into the future. Yeah, no, I, I really like that. It, it kind of gathers its own momentum here, but I think that's kind of how we. I came across you really. I think it was your your content. I know there was probably a, a mutual connection somewhere, but it was also what jumped out was how clear your message was. AI for education. You know, there's, you know, it's very clear whether you built it yourself in Squarespace or you, you got a team do. I think the message is pretty clear. And I know what I'm really interested to dig on is um, the learning piece. So obviously, in terms of those educational institutions, the academics you're speaking to, there's obviously an air of pessimism uh, at the moment around you know, the, maybe the more older school educational establishments around AI, you know, that's not really going to benefit us. But in your in your experience and that understanding of that space, especially being a teacher, what are your thoughts on how AI can personalize that learning experience then? It, you know, it's really interesting because we put out this, um, you know, relatively simple matrix of like what's happening in education institutions from weight to ban to ban to self-guided adoption to institutional wide. And the first version of that was actually ignore with an ostrich and its head in the sand. So I, we decided not to do that because it's pretty crass, but I actually like, I talked to my co-founder yesterday. I want to expand that four into five and include ignore because I think what's happening is we have this really like large, um, you know, curve of adoption and interest you know, and I think that there is a group that's hoping this goes away. And so when you talk about older school, it's not even older school, it's people that are really, really burnt out from COVID. I mean, people are like, where did the kids go? Kids, like we have a ton of kids that are no longer on rosters in public education. Like what about funding that was, is about to disappear? What about teacher shortages Mm. and burnout? And so that's what people's heads are at, especially leaders. And so it isn't even for a lack of like want to make things better, but it's a lack of capacity, both like cognitive load and emotional load that's happening. But it means that some people are kind of hoping that like this is a hype cycle, that it'll die down. And then there, on the other end, there are people that I recognize that education as we know it is, is done. Like yeah. we, you know, there will never be 
a time where a five paragraph essay cannot be written by a bot in 10 seconds or a college application or reference letters or, um, you know, we're about to move into multimodal um, AI, which mm. would be able to build a presentation or a portfolio. Um, and so I think that this is really an interesting piece about where the kind of, you know, risks lie, which is this uneven understanding and, and um, really capacity to adopt these or learn about these tools. And so that's on one side. Mm. And then those that are really thinking about personalization of learning, like that's what got me excited. We talked about ed tech for a long time. And if you show me another like personalized learning adaptive platform, and I can't, if you can't see my quotations, I will, <laughs> I will say them out loud or this idea of, you know, uh, gosh, the better LMS I have yep. like, you know, whatever, like that is going to help kids do better or, you know, even like corporate learning. What it is, is like the promise of EdTech was always personalized learning at scale. And we've just never been able to do it. And COVID exposed that. Mm. And I was talking about this yesterday is that this, I, we had this idea that one-to-one devices, the internet meant that we were a digital culture. We are not a digital culture. We are not digitized. The vast majority of stuff we have does not exist in even a, a, a like a place in which AI can even be trained on it. Like it's in papers on your desk. It's yep. in folders. It's in all kinds of different formats. We also are not digitally literate. Like, and so, you know, that really means that like people didn't even know how to use these tools. You look at Zoom, my favorite like Zoom thing ever was the guy that was the cat as a lawyer. And like, literally was, it's the funniest thing that I think I've ever seen. And, but it's because we're not digital. We're not a digital culture, even though yep. it seems like it. And so the idea of like AI, though, especially vertical AI, which is what I'm really excited about, is like generative AI is a path towards better experiences and creative ways of building with AI. But it's got a lot of limitations. So I'm really excited about like classical AI and, you know, kind of put together with generative AI in meaningful ways to actually have something where, you know, I'm working with an organization called Reading Rocket. It's 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 in its infancy, but it's a deep tech, you know, AI expert. He was teaching computers how to read, who's put together something where like for young students, it can help teachers assess their reading ability and then create brand new books for them that are not just about like the uh, the words you need to know in practice, but like Alex, you're now the unicorn king in the story, right? Like whatever yep. you love the most. And that just gets really excited. And I think that's where we're going. It's not right now. I mean, I think, you know, we're 12 to 18 months away from these tools having an evidence base and being able to go to market. But it is really exciting that that is the path we can get to. We just have like a lot of like stuff to do in the meantime, so that we're able to actually understand these tools and their their worth when they're available. Yeah, no, I think the way you talk about it is, uh, makes it so much easier to understand. Because I think for a lot of people, they always see well, at the moment, certainly AI is a threat. You know, we've only got to look yeah. at Hollywood with the content writers and AI is a threat <laughs> to the creative minds. We, you know, we're looking at um, just general content creation. People are worried this is going to displace the classic kind of creative mind. But in your understanding or experience, do you think it's just going to be adapting to a new way of creating content as opposed to displacing those kind of creative minds? I mean, it's a really interesting question. I mean, I don't know if you saw this, but today Getty Images or today or yesterday, Getty Images put out that they're going to create this commercially safe way for people to create brand new images that are trained by Getty Images. 
And so you talk about creative, like, I mean, Getty Images is considered to be, I think, the kind of very extensive and foremost kind of collection of, of mm. images that you can use in stock photos and, and you know, B-roll, et cetera. And so they're creating this space in which, like, it, what's interesting is, like, you pay for it. It's commercially safe. You can't be sued, apparently. Who knows? Regulations <laughs> still haven't existed. So that's a really strong statement to make, Getty. Um, but also it is something in which like, if it is a good enough photo, it'll be trained. It'll be, if it becomes part of the training data is that you'll get paid. So like, it is this really interesting way that the creator economy is really shifting. I mean, we are, you know, instead of going and spending it, well, I'll use an example. So we wanted real photos for our website of me, <laughs> of me being, you know, the big crazy personality I am in front of a room of teachers and students. And so we did that. We spent $1,300, which isn't that much, um, to get these photos that were okay. Mm-hmm. And now I could do something similar where I could have that probably in six months for $10 or $20. And I think that that's where it gets a real good question about what creativity becomes because it means that like we can create at a very low cost. I mean, I'm, I'm really interested if you've used Midjourney you know, it's really cool to be able to build new tool, new new images, but you can't refine them. But no. the idea of Dolly 3 coming out, that you'll be able to refine an image over and over again until you get what you want is something that I think is incredibly creative, but it also means that the skill gap collapses. Like I don't need to be an expert in photography, lighting, uh, you know, composition mm. to do that. And so if I can do that at a 80% with AI versus someone that can do it hundred percent without there are at, at the expense of those two things are going to be really interesting. And so I do think we have these big questions about how we all can be democratized, more creative, yeah. but then where does it happen when the people that those are their creative pursuits, they built this amazing amount of experience. How are we going to degrade those skills and actually have them be less and less, um, you know, meaningful. I mean, I think that's a real question that we have. And as you talked about the writer's strike, I think in some cases, you know, a first draft of a, a script, you know, is possible that that could be refined or fixed through AI pretty mm. soon. Yeah, I think you're completely right there. And I think if you looked from an education piece, it's going to be interesting for those educational, um, whether it's an educational establishment or just someone in a large corporate being educated through AI, they're, they're always going to beg the question, where's this kind of information coming from? Is it the model? Is it AI? Or is it someone that's created the content that AI has kind of made more palatable for the likes of you and me. So it, that, that boils down to ethical considerations as well, I guess, because obviously there's still this kind of um, nervousness about AI, as I've alluded to earlier. But what do you think are the, is the number one ethical consideration for using AI at the moment in education specifically? I think it's a real question of like AI literacy because we need to consider that these foundational models are incredibly new technology. Mm. They are extremely unreliable. They hallucinate at times up to 20%, meaning that they make stuff up and they do it in a way that is very convincing and they will keep saying it in the more and more convincing ways. Um, so you believe and it? <laughs> you've got, you believe it? No, I mean it's a predictive engine. It's not actually designed to tell you the truth or what's right. Yeah, it's designed to make the probabilities of what 
seems right. It is an approximation engine. You know, it's approximating Mm -hmm. what you think is like what it thinks the right answer is. And it's not giving you the right answer. My favorite is watching, um, you know, people really want word count. And they're like, why can't it give me a 50 word count blurb? Because it can't count. Yeah. Um, and so um, I think that there are some real questions about like the bias of training data, like algorithmic bias, um, you know, that comes into these tools, safety and privacy there. I'm sure you have people talking about that all the time. Right. So I won't dig into that too much. But I think what happens is, is that these foundational models are not fit for purpose for schools um, and for education. Um, they're not designed around uh, what we hope to do, which is to teach kids their true things and to do it in a way that is um, thoughtful, appropriate, and um, within their zone of proximal development, meaning that it understands appropriate challenge so that we get students to, to, to prove and, and not be discouraged. Um, and I think that's something that's really interesting. And I don't think it's a real interest of any of these foundational model builders of like education being something that's important. Mm. And because, um, you know, I always love when like Sam Altman's like, you know, went away for, you know, a month and came back and said, oh, education's important. And you're like, you pre- I, I promise yeah. you that someone within your organization, as you're building this tool, said the primary, one of the primary uses of this would be students using it for homework help, studying, tutoring, people, teachers using it for lesson planning and support of their work. Um, you know, I, I can't believe that didn't happen. Mm. But so these tools themselves are not fit for purpose. Anything built upon them, I think there's a misconception that is potentially, um, you know, exacerbated by people maybe not thinking about it the right way, but or maybe just not being as open. But like every foundational, any tool that's built on a foundational model, foundational model is going to have the same issues as that foundational model, regardless of how deep you work around it, like it's still going to hallucinate and it might hallucinate much less and it might be more appropriate or might start to say, I don't know. But realistically, those, the, I don't think people really understand that. So when someone builds a great, a, a great tool for the classroom, it still has those same issues that the foundational model have around bias, privacy, security, and hallucinations. So I think that that's really like something that is hard to understand on the one end. And so what we need to do is we need to really put a lot of time and effort into building AI literacy. Mm. And if I had my magic wand, I wouldn't build the best new AI tool. But what I would do is I would have everyone that I could possibly touch with that magic wand, get some upskilling into what AI can do and can't do. Um, And so that there's a better ability to actually use these tools in a responsible, ethical way, but also not to trust them. I don't know if you saw this, but um, there's a recent uh, paper that was Ethan Mollick and who's great and other um, uh, researchers that did with BCG. And they had these, this survey, you know, this, this um, really nice controlled experiment where some people got access to ChatGPT and some that did not and some got training. And what happened is that there were two types of tasks. One that was AI capable, meaning like it was in this like, like this, they call it the jagged frontier of like AI's capabilities. And then one that was not, that really required human like oversight and understanding to get right. And what happened is like, you know, cool things like everyone improved the quality that used ChatGPT, the speed increased, those that were lower performers increased more. But what ended up happening is that those that used ChatGPT for the AI piece that's not very, like wasn't able to do it well, Mm. had a higher quality wrong response. Wow. So they had a higher quality wrong response. They were more convincing with something that was wrong than the people that had that used their like were able to do that because they used their own, you know, skill set, their critical thinking, their, you know, expertise to say the right answer. 
And these wow. are BCG. These are not people that are not incredibly well educated, but became in a five hour period, became so reliant on educate on this tool that they literally retained 95% of it and cut and pasted it and said a very convincing wrong answer more likely than those that did not. And I think that that's a real example of like what will happen at scale if we're not really looking deeply at AI literacy as a absolute imperative that goes along with AI. Regulation is always a hard thing, but AI, like ethical guardrails, like those two things have to happen in concert. Yeah, well, I, th- I think it's a great example. I think the guardrails, governance, whatever we want to kind of kind of call it, I think there it's well documented. The trains left the station, AI's here. You know, it's 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 hurtling along at such a pace that companies and people are struggling to keep on top of keep we'll talk about how quickly it's developing, I guess. But if you then, when you're speaking to these companies or establishments or just generally people within this educational space, what are the key considerations they must be, I suppose, focusing on before deciding whether to adopt AI within education? You know, what are the kind of some of the blockers and the barriers you're coming up against? It's really interesting. And I think that um, when I started AI for Education, I had this intuition that it wasn't urgent yet. It wasn't an urgent need. Um, and, and we need it to be like in education, you need to like, if something is knocking at your door, like school is going to close tomorrow for six months yeah. or whatever, like to, to move to digital digitization of some sort. But like, I mean, we really like it. And we talked about why, like there's a lot of complexity. It's bureaucratic, the infrastructure, et cetera. But, you know, I think what's happened is like this idea of urgency, like why do we have to pay attention Mm. is not clear. I think the majority of people may have used some type of generative AI or like understand that it exists, but most likely they have used it in ways in which they're not very good at it. They've used the bad prompt. They think it's connected to the internet and they believe something that says is true that's not. And they have like not a great experience. And so what you see is more people kind of moving potentially into these wrappers that mm-hmm. do a thing okay. And, you know, but it's better than it was. Like teachers are fascinating. Apparently, like if you give us 50% better, like a tool that gives us a 50% better Google slide or a lesson plan, because we're so overworked, we will take that and we will not mm-hmm. complain because it's 50% better than we were. And so I think that's a good indication of like where like educators are right now in terms of their own burnout and capacity. So I think there's those kind of components that are kind of coming around. And also what we have as well is this really like an even pattern of early adoption where people ask me, like, I, I remember someone reaching out was a CNN uh, correspondent that was looking for like two months ago, schools that were using AI to like augment teaching and potentially like replace teaching. That was kind of his underlying principle. And we he wanted it. me to tell him that this was happening. And I'm like, it is not happening. No. <laughs> <laughs> like, first of all, the tool's not very good, but also like people just aren't really adopting it yet. Like, I can't tell you this. And I, I was like, you're a little early, if not forever early. But I think that this is the, the thing that what we see is we see like a couple of things. One is that if there's one or two people within the school system or educational institution that really understand this, they are the champions. And mm-hmm. what we'll see is that then training, PD, et cetera, will happen. The same thing, I think, in corporations too. There was a recent article by NX that looks at 1,600, uh, you know, 800 C- C-suite people and 800 kind of knowledge workers. 
And a lot of them, like they, they haven't done any work. They don't know what to do next. They, you know, the, the C-suite understands what's coming a little bit more than those that are employees. But the same thing in education, a clever study said one out of 10 schools had any PD at all about Gen AI before the end of the school year. Like, and so what's happening is there's this real kind of lack of adoption that's happening. And so that's the biggest barrier besides this kind of, you know, crushing complexity that is come that is part of schools. Schools today are, I think, the worst in terms of the like what's happening that they've ever been. We've got co- post COVID fatigue. Mm-hmm. We have you know culture wars that are happening within and around schools. We have you know real questions about funding. We have institutional systems of like teaching that have been around for two hundred you know one hundred fifty years and haven't changed. Um, and haven't you know in all these pieces we've got school safety issues specifically in the U.S. but other and you know, there are other places as well that have issues around school safety. So we're talking about trying to adopt this brand new technology that CEOs that are paying attention can't keep up with. Mm. Like how is an education system that is technically underskilled comparatively to other industries slow to change, risk averse for good reason? And also the most important cog in this, because if students don't learn about AI and then jobs of the future change radically in the next two years, there is going to be this real disconnect more than ever before between how students are coming out of school and where they're able to like directly impact and get jobs and be successful or even be successful in colleges or whatever that looks like. Yeah, I, I couldn't agree more. I think if you are. I know you alluded to this earlier, but if you if you see another kind of ed tech business trying to kind of spin up the same kind of solution to another to the same problem, you're going to go mad. But I think what's really interesting is the classic core educational establishment and way of learning is right for a disruption because ultimately you're right. They, if you don't get this right now, I've got kids in school myself, and I want them to be learning this. I want them to have the most effective and efficient education that puts them in the best possible place that in the next 10 or so years when they leave school, they're ready for the next wave of opportunity that's out there. And uh, yeah, I really like that. And I know you mentioned there about the corporate as well. So are you saying a lot of education, I know we're looking at kind of the educational establishments first, but actually from a bigger piece and the opportunity potentially for you and this business is that large corporate actually educating them on how to, you know, get the best out of AI. And I suppose to close things off, what what can people expect to see from you guys next over the next kind of 12, 18 months? What, what you can tell us, I guess. That's great. Yeah, we have this prompt library that's educator focused. So it's essentially like if you know Magic School or they're kind of prompt kind of like late like wrappers uh, where you can put in a couple of variables and you get a nice thing out. We, we have something quite different than that, which is really just here's a prompt that you can use and change that can be used on any chat bot. Here's an example. So if you've never used it before, just cut and paste it and see what's possible. And then some opportunities to make it work for you. Because mm-hmm. one of the best things about generative AI is that creative ability to refine and to keep trying and to move and to push and pull in ways that are really interesting that expand our, not only our like abilities, but also like what we think is possible. Um, and so we have that and it was really interesting. So, um, you know, you know, you kind of have something when, Someone posted on a Friday and it goes viral. Someone posted our prompt library on LinkedIn 
on a Friday and then it went viral. So like, <laughs> it was like, really, this woman was like, oh my God, you know, I have like a hundred thousand impressions on this in a weekend. And she had like 2000 followers. Wow. Um, but what, and, and it was, I, I was like, I'm talking to her tomorrow. I'm like, thank you. Um, but what, uh, what is interesting is that we heard from nonprofit leaders. We heard from corporate leaders that these were like, people were using these and some of them are like, like emails and newsletters are part of that. But I think it really has shown that like, there is this desperate need for these practical resources. And so we're, we're going to be updating or uh, alluded to Squarespace. Unfortunately, it's really bad for a prompt library. It's, you can't filter it or search. So it's just this like not great thing. So we're doing that update this week to make it much more user-friendly. Um, and then we're most likely going to build a, like a library for at nonprofits and corporate LEDs. So, you know, and um, things like grants for nonprofits, like at grant writing or evaluations or, you know, things along those later, or like for L&D around thinking through workplace, you know, like building new trainings and all those types of pieces. And so I think the reason why we're going to go that route is that we have something that works for people and we want to replicate it and we want to scale our impact. So that's one thing that we're looking into doing. This is kind of immediate piece. When you ask me for 12 to 18 months, I, I mean, we may not be talking about generative AI like we are today right. in 12 to 18 months. And so there's going to be a really big shift. But what I will say is that we want to scale our impact. And so we're thinking about like train the trainers. So like train, like come in and learn about generative AI, the capabilities, limitations, the way at which it can increase productivity, personalize learning, um, you know, create spaces in which you can, you can find joy in this again, because you're not focused on all the crap that happens around you um, and keeps being added to your plate. Um, and But the best way to do that is like, let's give you the actual resources that are tried and true and tested. And then you can go back to your institution, which you are going to be the best to support because you understand the context, you understand the people, you understand what will work or not, the change management needs to happen. So we're looking really at doing that, as well as thinking through micro-credentials around what it means to be a responsible doctor of AI, whether in education or not. And then the final piece is we really like to do some work around um, being able to talk to talk about generative AI tools um, that are responsibly built. And so I talked to, um, you know, it's quite funny uh, if you become, uh, you know, a bit of a like thought leader or something, people really want you to talk about their stuff. And <laughs> as a former ed tech founder, um, it means I get to talk to people from all over the world every day, but also to a lot of ed tech founders. And I ask them the same questions. What are you doing around hallucinations? What are you doing around bias? What are you doing around the way in which you're training people? Like, how are you showing efficacy? And so these are things that I think are really important. And if we could be a part of that, that if people are willing to move towards, you know, identifying bias or hallucinations or degrees of confidence or looking through the way in which they're creating better, more reliable systems, no one is going to be able to do that 100%. But if they're doing that, then that's an opportunity to say, hey, this is something that you can start looking at and trusting, at least to try to pilot. Um, so we're going to be doing those types of things. But I don't know, Alex. I mean, I could be, I, we could be really successful or we could be, you know, part of the wave that gets crushed or I don't know. But I can say is that like for those that are listening that are entrepreneurs or fledgling entrepreneurs or just about to start that journey, um, you know, for me, like, it's just a thing that is a passion, like you said, but also it's the first time in years I've been creative. Mm. Like, I am deeply creative right now. And I burnt myself out on that about eight years ago. And to be able to do something in which I really enjoy what we do, I, my co-founder is a, a, amazing and someone that I've known for a long time. 
I'm doing something that is getting the most positive feedback of anything I've ever done and has an impact on people's like experiences and is something that like I would not give up for anything. So, you know, sometimes it works and hope and even if it doesn't work, it's been a really fun time. Well, I've got no doubt this will be hugely successful. I think the passion and knowledge that you kind of express on this and also online, and I, I will make sure I tag you and tag uh, AI for Education, all of our, our outreach as well. But I think you've, whether it was by luck or by judgment or just intuition, I think you've identified an opportunity in a market that is there. Uh, people are obviously responding super positively to this. So, uh, yeah, I, I can't thank you enough, Amanda, your um, your passion and uh, kind of uh, interest in making this space better and upskilling our next kind of future cohort of AI professionals or just professionals generally, I think is uh, being fantastic to hear. So thanks so, so much. I uh, yeah, can't thank you enough. Thank you. Pleasure to be here and a great conversation. Thank you very much, Amanda.